So, during the summer, we've been in this series called God's Big Story, and one of the things that we're doing is we're just taking an overview of Scripture, looking at the significant moments of Scripture, so we can better understand the context of it, especially when we open up our Bibles at home uh, to help us know where we are at in that story when we start reading Scripture. And so far, we've covered creation and Adam and Eve, all the way to the Israelites and God's covenant with them, the law, which we talked about last Sunday. Well, eventually Moses and his successor Joshua die, and Israel is charged with keeping the law. And they're to do so under the governance of these military tribal chiefs, which the Bible refers to as judges. And so you read about all of that in the book of Judges, and when you read the book of Judges, you can tell it's not going well. So it's a total failure, and there's, there's tons of atrocity and, and ugly stuff happening in the book of Judges. And over and over again, the book of Judges will say, in those days, there was no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The books of First and Second Samuel, then, they come after Judges, and they tell the story of Israel's transition from judges to a king, an earthly king and a kingdom. In fact, Samuel is considered by some biblical scholars to be the last judge of Israel. And there's some verses in, in 1 Samuel that talk about how Samuel judges Israel. So he's a, he's a prophet, he's also a judge for Israel. And 1 Samuel chapter 8 details this, this critical moment of this transition from judges to kings. And we read in verse 4, it says, So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, You are old, and your sons do not follow your ways. Which is true. He had terrible sons. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. And there's a sad sentence right there, right at the end of that passage. God wants Israel to be set apart, to be different from all the other nations. And you just finished hearing about that when you read the Torah. And now Israel says, oh, we want to be like the nations. And so Samuel, he prays to God concerning this, and God responds in verse 7. It says, And the Lord told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king as they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. So Samuel will go on to tell Israel that the kind of king that they need is one who is humble and faithful. If we're going to have a king, he needs to be humble and faithful. And their first king, Saul, will be, he'll serve as a warning to them of how not to live. And their second king, David, will be more so an example to him, especially early on in his life. Not so much later in life he struggles, and we see that Israel still needs a righteous king. But God will use Israel's flawed kingdom to foreshadow and sort of cast a need uh, for a perfect future kingdom where God is their king. So there's this specific story in, uh, in David's life where... 
it illustrates his faithfulness and his humility that demonstrates the fact that he is the kind of king that God wants for Israel and he's the kind of people that the Israelites should be. What he does, the Israelites should emulate. It's the story of David and Goliath. But it's a story that we often get wrong in a variety of ways. And I think the, the, the biggest way that we get it wrong is we often say, all right, Goliath is huge, he's a giant, and David is small and young and just a shepherd boy. And, uh, and so this is a story of an underdog. And usually what we do with that is we say, man, since I'm a believer and God is on my side, then no matter what giants I face, I can overcome them. But what is the story of David and Goliath, and, and what does it mean to me? Those are our two questions today, and it's different from what we might normally think. So, uh, we read about it in 1 Samuel 17, and verse 3 explains the need uh, for this showdown that takes place. Verse 3 in uh, 1 Samuel 17 says, The Philistines occupied one hill, and the Israelites another with the valley between them. And so what's happening here is that, that neither army wants to disadvantage themselves. They're both on hills, and there's a valley between them. And if one army moves first, they'll automatically be at a disadvantage. Neither one of them wants to fight uphill. So neither one of them wants to be the first to move, and, and so they're at this stalemate. They're at this standstill. And there's a champion from the Philistine that steps out and he challenges the Israelites to something called single combat where one of the fighters from each army faces off. Choose the best and let's have them face off. It's a military event that several ancient historians talk about witnessing or, or record happening. And this fight will serve to not necessarily determine the fate of the battle, but it will at least demonstrate the fate of the battle. And so it tends to affect morale. The champion's name is Goliath, and he taunts the Israelites relentlessly for 40 days, we're told. Now there's some debate as to how tall Goliath is. There are earlier manuscripts that we've found that place Goliath at about 6 foot 9 inches, still much taller than the average Israelite. But others place him around nine foot six inches. In fact, most of our Bible translations will say that he is, is nine foot six inches tall. Uh, that's after you kind of determine what a cubit and a span is. So a cubit typically, I think, is from your finger to your elbow. And, uh, and so it's not the most precise way to measure something because everybody has a different sized cubit, right? And a span is about half that. There's a, a, an Old Testament expert named Robert Alter who argues for something around eight foot. No matter what, Goliath is huge and formidable. The tallest man recorded in the Guinness Book of World Records is eight foot 11. Uh, so Goliath is at his, at his highest measurements that we have. Goliath is, is nine inches away from this tallest man in the world. At his peak... Uh, this, this tallest man on record is 500 pounds. And he was still growing when he died. And the reason he died was from a foot infection, um, not old age. So he had a, a lot more growing left to do. Goliath's coat weighs about, his coat of armor weighs 125 pounds. 
Uh, it's about the same size of a full suit of armor that a, a knight, a medieval knight, would have worn if he was wearing a full suit of armor, about 125 pounds. And so this is bulky and it's cumbersome, but it's not unreasonable for a man of Goliath's size. Goliath is basically, uh, he's, he's an army unit which we would maybe describe as ancient tank warfare. He's specialized heavy infantry. He's fully armored. He's huge. He carries a sword and a spear and a javelin. He's one of the biggest men that the nation has to offer. And his purpose in any army is to breach the enemy line. So you have a front line of enemy combatants, and they're usually in tight formation and hard to maneuver around. And Goliath's job is to break the enemy line. So when you're part of the front line, man, this guy, when he comes at you, you're in trouble. There's, there's fear that strikes you. He's a prized soldier in any army. And often in scripture, this position is referred to as champions or mighty men or sometimes heroes, depending on the translation. Now, no one in Saul's army, including Saul, who scripture says is head and shoulders above the Israelites, above, Saul is head and shoulders above all other Israelites, and no one is willing to fight, including Saul. In steps David. David is not an old man. There's several times throughout this passage where he's referred to as a young man, but he's also not a small shepherd boy. In fact, even before his fight with Goliath, He's referred to as a warrior. David has a reputation already for being a warrior even before he defeats Goliath. And so we read about this in 1 Samuel chapter 16, just a, a chapter beforehand. It says, One of the servants, talking to Saul, answered, I have seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem, David, who knows how to play the lyre. He is a brave man and a warrior. He speaks well and is a fine-looking man, and the Lord is with him. But David's not a tank. He is what we would call a slinger. David is a ranged infantry unit. So, I mean, there, there are, there's a class of soldiers that ancient Israel has that are called slingers. Now, ancient writers and historians say that they had further range than most archers of their time. Slingers were incredibly effective. There's a tribe in Israel called the Benjamites, and uh, in Judges 20, verse 16, it describes them as having 700 soldiers who could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. There's another passage in the Bible that talks about slingers, and they say that they, they cover a field with stones so that farming is no longer uh, a possibility. They just completely cover this field. With stones. But, but here's how deadly they are. National Geographic reports that recent experiments show that slingers had as much stopping power as a 44 Magnum. Uh, this is a pistol that has been known to kill elephants, so incredibly large game. And this is what David has. This is what he's equipped with. When David says that he's been killing lions and, and, and bears as a shepherd, he's not exaggerating. So David would have come across Asiatic lions that would have weighed as much as 420 pounds, and he would have also come across Syrian bears that weighed around 500 pounds, close to what we can imagine Goliath would have weighed. David is not an underdog, and he's not outmatched. He only looks like he is. 
But looks can be deceiving, particularly so when you're in this state of fear and doubt, or when you're overconfident, looks can be deceiving. So what is the story of David and Goliath? Well, it is a historical single combat battle that takes place in a valley between two opposing armies, neither one willing to be the first to move. A ranged infantry unit versus specialized heavy infantry. And the next question is, well, what are we supposed to do with this story? What does this story mean to me? And two things. First off, David here is a type of Jesus. Theologians talk about typology, and, uh, and, and what they're saying is that there are certain people and certain circumstances in the Old Testament that foreshadow Jesus, or sometimes we might say that they prefigure Jesus. So Jesus himself at one point invokes Jonah as a type. In Matthew 12, 39 to 40, Jesus says, He answered, A wicked and adulterous nation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So I say this to say that Jesus recognizes that there are people in the Old Testament that prefigure him, that sort of foreshadow his coming, even though Jonah didn't necessarily know that that was Jonah's intention, right? But interestingly enough, Jonah hints at this. He alludes to Jesus without knowing this. There's this prayer to God that he has after Jonah uh, is, escapes the, the belly of the fish or is thrown up. And uh, he describes in metaphorical terms the fact that he's buried in the earth even though he was in a fish's belly underwater, Right? He even describes seaweed being wrapped around his head, and there's like, there's no reason for him to say that. I mean, it's just kind of, it's a strange line, and it seems unnecessary unless it's understood as a reference to the crown of thorns. Here's Jonah's prayer. He says, the engulfing waters threatened me, the deep surrounded me, seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down, the earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought me up brought my life up from the pit. Uh, so many theologians are, are quick to point out that just like Jonah was a type, so too David is a type of Jesus. David does not represent us. He represents Jesus. Right? I think we have that tendency to automatically place ourselves as the main character or the hero of the story. But David represents Jesus, not us. And so Goliath is sin and death. And so who are we in the story? Well, the only character that's really left is the cowering Israelites. Similarly to David's fight with Goliath, when you read the New Testament, Jesus' victory is totally unexpected. Right? When, when Jesus is, is being put on trial, his disciples do not think that this is a hopeful situation. They'd look at that, and Jesus appears to be outmatched. But looks can be deceiving. Ultimately, Jesus overcomes Goliath, sin and death, by dying on the cross. And so he secures victory for us when we could not. Just as David stands between the enemy and the Israelites and secures victory and saves his people, David is a type of Jesus. Jesus stands in the gap for us. He secures our victory even when his weapons seem inferior. And by the way, 
uh, both Jesus and David were sent to the battlefield by their father. But Goliath hints at this just like Jonah did. When he sees David with a shepherd's staff and a sling, he says, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? But David only has one stick, his shepherd's staff. And so, so why does Goliath misspeak? Perhaps Goliath's slip-up alludes to Jesus without knowing that. And maybe some of you are going to think that this next line is corny, and I'm okay if you do. Jesus comes at sin and death with two pieces of wood. Now, so, so David is a, a type of Jesus, and, and this match between him and Goliath foreshadows what Jesus will do for us. Now, most people who come to this conclusion will caution you. You are not David. You are the Israelites. Your job is to cower and let God fight your battles for you. Man, that sounds good. It really does. It sounds good because cowering is, is not as bad as fighting. <laughs> like it is, it is nice to be a spectator and to not have to worry about doing the dangerous stuff. But I, I can't get down with that completely. We're not called to be spectators in the kingdom of God. In fact, we're called to follow, and we're called to follow where our rabbi leads us and what he does we are supposed to do too. James tells us that Elijah was a man just like us. And the reason that James says that is to say, look at the amazing, powerful things that Elijah can do when he's filled with the Holy Spirit, when he's got the power of God. He's a human just like us. We can do it too. Paul tells us that the same power that raised Christ from the dead is in us. The most important work of Christ, what empowered that, is the same power that's at work within us. Jesus says that anyone who has faith in him will do what he does and even greater things. The New Testament does not expect spirit-filled believers to be cowering Israelites. I just, I can't, I can't go there. 2 Timothy 1.7 says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. And so when we read the New Testament, we see the expectations that God has for his people. And we ask the question, what do we do with the story of David and Goliath? The answer is we use it as our example for how God wants us to be part of his kingdom. And, and that is not as comforting as saying, we're just supposed to be cowering Israelites. There's a little bit more, there's something there that makes me go, okay, uh, is this what I'm signing up for because this is scary stuff and... and Maybe my life doesn't seem scary, and so I've got this question of why doesn't it seem scary? Am I not doing everything that God wants me to be doing and has me to be doing? There's three things that David does that I want us to see this morning. The first is this, David surrenders. David is fighting when no one else will, so he's willing to lay it all down for God when no one else is. David surrenders, not to Goliath, but he surrenders to God his whole life is offered in service to God. He has the heart of, of Esther, this woman in the Bible who, who approaches a king and a, a pagan king, a non-Israelite king, when it was against the law to do so. And she has, she has Israel pray and fast for her. And she says, by the way, if I die, I die. I'm going to do this because I think God wants me to do it. And if I die, 
I die. He has the heart of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who say, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. He will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. He is the heart of Jesus who, when facing the crucifixion, says, God, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken from me. But I want your will to be done, not mine. So the takeaway is, man, if you die to self, you will be free to live for God. David takes a chance. He, he takes a risk. He, he sees Goliath. He does. He sees Goliath, and Goliath is scary. And he sees his brothers, literal brothers, who are scared. His older brothers are scared. And his king, Saul, is scared. And his fellow countrymen are scared. David understands this, but he's willing. He's surrendered. He's prepared to give his life for God. Most of us will probably go our whole life without having to put our life on the line for Jesus, right? But all of us at various times will have opportunities to put our reputation, our pride, our dreams, our finances, our comforts, our self-interests on the line for Jesus. And only when we're dead to self can we be freed to live for God. Man, how many times have we missed the opportunity to join the fight because we've been too scared to take risks? I mean, I know I'm guilty of it. I just, I know that it happens. And, and sometimes it happens in daily life, normal life circumstances when you're like, man, she seems like she needs help. Should I go up to her and offer help? But I don't know if she'll reject me. I don't know if it, she'll be offended that I think she looks like she needs help. Whatever it is, right? We, we, man, there are so many opportunities that come our way where we let fear dictate when we know that there's a, a proper spirit-filled response. Number two, David trusts God. Goliath trusts in his own power. We see that really clearly in the passages, but David trusts in God. Someone once said that David has to overcome three Goliaths. The first is his older brother who doubts Jesus, David. He sees David and he says, hey, why have you come down here? With whom did you leave those sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. And David has to overcome his older brother's view of him. And then David overcomes Saul, who, who doubts and says, You are not able to go against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man. He has been a warrior from his youth. And I think this happens where we reach this critical point of, of faith and trust in God, and all of a sudden there are doubts. And sometimes they come from people who are close to us, and they doubt our intentions. They get us wrong. And we're wounded from the ones that we need support from. It's almost like there's some spiritual battle taking place behind the scenes, right? And, and others sometimes doubt our fitness, are you sure you're the right person for the job? I'm not, I'm not sure. Are you sure God's calling you to this? I don't know if this is the right fit for you. Maybe someone else with more experience should go first. 
Aren't you a little young? But notice that David's confidence doesn't come from self-esteem. That's not what this story is about. He's not Goliath. Goliath is confident in himself. He's confident in his position and his size and his armor and his weapons, and that's his downfall. He's so confident that he underestimates David and his defenses are down. David's confidence does not come from self-esteem. It comes from remembering who God is and what God has done and his ability to see how he fits into this story. Look at what, what he says to Saul in response. It says, David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine, a good insult to keep in your pocket, by the way, um, will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. David's not bragging about himself. David looks back on what God has done in his life. He looks back on the battles that he's fought before and, and how it is that God saved him then. He looks back on the character of God. He, he invokes the, the word, the name Yahweh. And this is the Lord. This is Yahweh. This is the living God. He's the rescuer. He's worked through me before and he can do it again. And man, it is so important for us to be able to recollect the things that God has done in our life, to have the kind of prayer life that it takes to be able to say, man, God, can we just take some time together and reminisce on the things that you've done in my life so that when times like this happen, we can be prepared to recall who God is and what he's done. The next thing Saul does is he tries to dress David in Saul's armor. It says, Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. Notice the parallels here. There's the, the coat of armor, the bronze helmet, the sword. Saul is dressing David like Goliath. And David takes it off. Ultimately, he's just not used to this. He hasn't been wearing this kind of armor. And so he gets his staff and his sling and his five stones. And what's he doing? I think one of the things that David is doing, in a sense, is he's doing what comes more naturally to him. But maybe the better way for us to understand it is that David is looking at his gifts. David's looking at his abilities. David's looking at his experiences. And he's saying, this is how God uses me. This is, is what God has taught me to do, and I can trust that God has prepared me for this moment. David's looking back on his life, and he's saying, how has God prepared me for this moment? I love that. He's not looking at Goliath. He's not forcing himself to fit this mold the way that Saul does. Saul looks at Goliath, and he thinks, man, David's going to need to be able to match this. But David trusts that God has given him exactly what he needs already. He doesn't need to fit someone else's perception of what a warrior should look like. And I think that happens to us too, where people will doubt us because we don't look the way they imagined. Because we're not 
not the right gender or we're not the right age or we're not the right size because we don't have the right tools or the right experience or the right education. The same thing happens when, when Goliath sees David. It's one of the funnier passages in this, in this um, passage of scripture. It says, Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy. He's more than a boy. He's a young adult, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. Man, is Goliath mad that David is hotter than he is? Right? Like, what, what are we supposed to take from that passage? How dare you be so handsome? I think he's insulted because David doesn't look like a warrior. He's not scary. I think that's what the passage is saying. He's not scary looking. He's not weathered and hardened in this experienced champion who strikes fear into the hearts of men. He's not what Goliath expects. And I think this happens so many times in our lives where people underestimate us because we don't look the way that they imagined we should look. Man, maybe, maybe, maybe our face isn't as symmetrical as they think it should be. Maybe, maybe we are. Maybe they, they pictured a, a man in that role, but we're a woman. Or, or maybe we, they, we look too young. They perceive that to be a job for, for somebody who is older and has gray hair. Whatever it is, right? Maybe we, have the, we don't dress the way that they expected somebody like us to dress. Or, or we have the piercings in the wrong places. And Goliath looks at David and he's, he's insulted because he doesn't look like he's, he's the man for the job. So he taunts David and he curses him. And this is how David responds. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands. I'll strike you down and cut off your head, which he does to you. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. It's interesting that David is using a military weapon, and at the same time, David knows that it's not by sword or spear, and we could add on to that, or even sling that the Lord saves. David's, David's not saying, man, God doesn't prefer to use swords and spears, he prefers to use slings. He's not saying that. He's saying the battle is the Lord's and, and he'll win it through his power, not human might. Here's what makes this so exceptional, though. David is a deadly warrior. He's killed a bear. He's killed a lion. He's experienced with a sling, a very powerful weapon in ancient times and even today. And he's already known for being a warrior. But that's not what he's relying on. That's not what he's trusting in. And for David, it would have been so tempting for him to be driven by self-esteem, but he's not. His courage comes from God. Appreciate for a moment how David's humility looks when we consider this. David humbly places his trust in God, but Goliath foolishly and pridefully places his trust in his own might. If this was an underdog story, humility would not be that significant. Underdogs are supposed to be humble because they know it's a long shot. 
But David's humility doesn't come from his lack of ability. It doesn't come from him being an underdog. It comes from his fear of God. It comes from a place of wisdom. David has humility not because he feels outmatched. In fact, even though he's so powerful, he'd still rather trust in God. Here's the takeaway. You don't need the power of the sword as much as you need the power of God. I think in theory that's something that we can all get behind, right? But how does it look in practice? Do we really pray more than we prepare? Do we search for God's will more than we humanly analyze any given situation and decide the best course of action? When you're thinking about marriage or buying a house or choosing a career or applying to college or or quitting a job or sharing your faith or confronting a neighbor or filing for divorce, are you looking for God's will and trusting that his way is right and that if you're obedient, he will provide? Or are you thinking... What seems most appealing to me? What seems most practical to me? Because that's my default. I mean, it really is my default still for me to go, man, what's the, what seems to be the most logical thing to do? I mean, I love logic and I love analyzing and it's a, it's a joy to use my, my intellect in that way and sometimes I, it's so easy for me to rely on my own power Rather than pausing and saying, God, your way is better. Your way is best. And I, and I want your way for my life. How often do we miss out on God's miraculous power and miss out on his provision because we trust in our, in our own power? Number three, last one. Shorter than the rest. David serves. David is fighting He says, so that the nations will know that there is a God in Israel. We see that in his response to Goliath. The whole world will know there's a God in Israel. David is serving God. He's living for something greater than himself. David is not saying, God, help me do this courageous. Help me me do this, this brave, prominent thing so that I can be known so I can be recognized, so I can be influential. David's not saying, I'm going to do this and the whole world will know that there is a champion in Israel. The whole world will know not to mess with us because I'm here. David is fighting because he wants God to be known. He wants God to be glorified. And guys, that right there, I think, is the key for us. This isn't a story about how trusting in God is the, the way to riches and recognition. Hey, if you could only trust God, then you'll be so successful. That's not what this story is about. And this, this isn't a message about how to unlock the, the universe's hidden path to success. If we could only just manipulate our situation and, and, and feign this, this trust and this humility and, for God, and, and then all of a sudden we'll be successful. That's not what this is about. And so here's the takeaway. Favor comes when we're passionate for God's purposes. Guys, if you want to be surrendered to God 
and trusting in his power because you think that that's how you'll get ahead in this life, you'll be sorely disappointed. As long as your life still revolves around you, man, you won't experience the abundant life that Jesus has for you. You'll never please God. You'll never know his favor. God chose David because David was a man after his own heart. David was passionate for God's purposes. He was passionate for the things that God was passionate about. That's what it means to to be a man or woman after God's own heart. I thought about that passage, and and it didn't take me... just a couple of minutes and I thought of some of my best friends who have been willing to say Keith if it's important to you then it's important to me too and I think God is is just the same way some of his best friends are people who are willing to say God if it's important to you then it's important to me God if it matters to you then it matters to me God if it if it breaks your heart then I want it to break my heart too. The fact of the matter is there are Goliaths in our world still. There's fear and there's addiction and there's illness and there's poverty and there's doubt and there's selfish ambition and pride and violence. There's tragedy. There's oppression And Jesus has overcome sin and death and he's made salvation possible when it was impossible, but the world still experiences the daily effects of sin and a daily struggle with evil. And Ephesians tells us that there is a fight. There is a fight. Not against flesh and blood, but against evil spiritual forces. Right? We know this theologically. Maybe we don't know this, but theologically, we have, we have three enemies, Satan, self, and sin. And if we want to overcome those Goliaths, then we need to have the right weapons to do so. Not the sword, but the power of God. So if we want to experience God's kingdom, the way that it's meant to be experienced, ultimately, we need to do three things. We see it in the story of David and Goliath, but we see it in other parts of Scripture as well. The first is this. We need to surrender our lives to God. To die to self, to be free, to to live the life that God has for us, to be willing. You know, I want you to think this morning, if there's anything that you need to surrender And maybe that's a dream that you have. Maybe that's just saying, and you know what, God, this is something that I really want and and it hasn't happened yet and I'm not sure if it ever will and I'm not sure if you have it for me. I'm not sure if that's your plan for me and I really want it. But I also want you to know that, God, I love you and I will follow you no matter what. And I surrender that dream to you and I'm still going to live for you regardless of whether or not that dream for my life comes true. Or maybe there's, maybe there's a sin in your life, an ongoing struggle that you need to surrender to God and say, you know what, God, that is sin. 
haven't been willing to call that sin yet, but today I surrender to you. That is sin, and I need your help, and I need your forgiveness, and I know we can do this together. Maybe that surrender is simply saying, yeah, God, oh man, there have been times where I've been afraid, and there have been times where I've thought about my reputation, where I've thought about how it will look if I do something on your behalf that I know I should do. And I need help, God. I want to surrender that to you. I want to be totally dead to self. I want to live for you, God, no matter what. I want to be able to face Goliaths or even just really small battles for your sake, where my life isn't even on the line. Help me surrender that to you, God. We need to surrender our lives to God if we want to live in his kingdom the way God wants us to live in his kingdom. Number two, we need to trust in God, not ourselves. To trust that that doing things his way and relying on his power makes more sense than doing what we want to do and what we think is most practical in any given situation. And we need to serve God's purposes and to be willing to say, God, I want to care about what you care about. And it's probably has nothing to do with how many Instagram followers I have. Right? Like, man, God, the things that you care about and the things that you witness and the things that you're doing in the world, help me to come alongside you, to care about those things too, to not get distracted. And when I do, just remind me, Lord, that, that I am distracted, that there are things in this world that you don't care about, that sometimes are a big deal to me, and they need to not be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, thank you for David's example. And God, can we just remind ourselves that if it's not for Jesus Christ and his death on the cross and his sending the Holy Spirit to us, if it wasn't for all of that, then there is no way that we could take this passage and read it the way we have this morning. Without Jesus, there's no way that we are ever expected to act like David. But you have given us Jesus. We are to follow him. And you have given us your Holy Spirit. And the same power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in us. And we are not given a spirit of fear or timidity, but a spirit of power and self-discipline. And so we look at the story of David through a different lens because of who you are and what you've done and what you've called us to. And when we read it, we understand that we are no longer cowering Israelites, Lord. And the way that David was not a cowering Israelite, because he could have been, and it would have been easy to, to do what everyone else was doing, but the way that he chose you and was humble and faithful was by surrendering his whole life to you. It was by trusting in your power and not his, even though he was powerful in the human sense. And Lord, it was by serving you 
and making your purposes his purposes. And so, Lord, we pray that for our lives this morning. Help us, Lord, to be surrendered to you. Help us, Lord, to trust in you. Help us, Lord, to serve you and make your purposes our purposes. We love you, Lord. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.